2: Greetings, young knaves, and welcome to The Nerdist Podcast, episode number 244. The Nerdist TV show salutes time travel on BBC America this Saturday, the 18th of August... At ten nine 9 central, uh, Damon Lindelof is going to be on the show. You may remember him from uh, a few episodes ago on Nerdist TV show. Also being an excellent guest on this podcast a couple times and creating a bunch of stuff and writing a bunch of stuff that you probably enjoyed. So he was a fantastic guest. We also had Barrett Baratunde Thurston on. Uh, it was super, 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 super fun. So please watch the Nerdist Tribute to Time Travel this Saturday, August 18th on BBC America. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Carbonite Online Backup. Say, friend, are you a seldom sometimes or when I get around to it back a I don't know why I'm doing this voice. Maybe you think your external hard drive is all you need, but to be absolutely protected in case of anything, some sort of meltdown, someone in your hat breaks in and steals all your electronics, you need online off-site in the cloud backup from Carbonite. Because with Carbonite, your files are automatically and continually backed up, so you don't have to think about it. You can, you can, you argue, can, you can replace those emotions with anything. All that fear is gone. You can think about tater tots or what it'd be like to have a duck for a wife. I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. You could do anything you wanted with that mental, uh, with that mental storage instead of worrying about your online storage. Oh, good riff, Hardwick. Once you have Carbonite, a computer disaster is not a disaster because your backup files are kept securely and you can just easily restore them. It's your better backup plan for home or your small business. It's Carbonite. Plans start at 59 bucks a year. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code NERDIST and get two bonus months with a purchase. That's Carbonite.com and two bonus months with the offer code NERDIST. And now this episode, you guys. Fucking awesome. It's Dr. Demento. I mean, if I could even tell you what that guy meant to me as a kid, and my comedy development, and what he exposed me to, and the worlds that that he showed me, in a, a whole generation, and continues to do so, over at his website, drdemento.com um, I mean, this is, I mean, we've obviously had, we've had big, fancy, famous people on the podcast before, but when a guy like Dr. Demento comes on, it just it makes my molecules vibrate in a way that I can't I mean, you're, you're all fanboys of stuff, and Demento is just one of those guys for me, so, um, this is, it we recorded at meltdown, um, we recorded more podcasts there, I like it, and, uh, and it was, it was an, it was such an incredibly amazing time with him, just, what just hearing his voice, but seeing it come out of his mouth as opposed to just hearing it, totally flips my bean, um, that sounds like a euphemism for lady masturbation, and I take it back, I'm so sorry, uh, it's, Freaks out my clitoris head. Now, again, that's weird. It's really weird. Nerds Podcast episode 244 with Dr. Demento.
3: Now entering Nerdist.com.
2: Comedy Are you recording? Mm-hmm. It's our, our small satellite space here at Meltdown Comics.
4: Let's do a quick roll call. It's our podcast. Doctor Demento is here. Woo woo! Wind up your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was just driving on Hardwick Street earlier today, and were you like, "This is a prep. This is a preamble of things to come." Yes. Well, for, ever since we moved to that neighborhood, or at least ever since I, I knew about your work, I reminded of you every time I cross that street that yeah. blows me away and it
2: still freaks me out that you uh, are familiar with my work you played you actually played a hard and firm song years ago yeah and Mike Furman and I lost our minds because every Sunday night when I was growing up in Memphis Tennessee Dr. Demento show I mean it just completely well we'll get into all this uh, we're, there's gonna be a lot of slobbering on you uh, Joan Ray's here. And then our buddy Dan Pasternak, yeah, who, comedy nerd and also network suit in a weird sort of way. Comedy nerd, then comedian.
5: And then comedian. Then and producer,
0: then, then network suit.
5: Some network was like, hey, maybe we should hire a comedy nerd to are you help going us program. In order of, uh, are you going chronologically or in order of my capabilities?
2: <laughs> oh, shit, I don't know. We're going to have to tag cloud you and figure out which word is the biggest. Uh, but, uh, but Dan Pasternak, for those of you guys, um, we did a pilot with you. Mike and I did a pilot with you at IFC. Uh, Dan is responsible for shows like Portlandia and, and really helping to establish IFC as kind of like alternative comedy central. I think. Is if, if uh,
5: I, I don't know that I want to accept the word responsible, and also I think that's that's very grand. But you're, you've
2: always been very gracious, thank you, Chris. Well, I just we've been friends a very long time. Yeah, um, you have the most insane collection of comedy albums that I've ever seen, and and I think almost all of them are signed, like Dick Gregory, Bob Newhart, uh, Carlin, like really a, a, an extensive group a grouping of, of comedy albums.
5: Well, I think my collection probably pales in in comparison to to the guest of honor and here. we're gonna well, we're
4: gonna add a little head start <laughs> well,
5: we're, we're gonna get to that the reason dan that we that we had you on is because
2: um you ultimately connected us all together you've worked with dr d years ago when you were a kid and uh matt myra couldn't be here so i was like who better to have on than someone who's known the doctor for so for so long
5: well i'm very grateful yeah
2: so it's just we uh so uh, be prepared, Dr. D, because we're about to nerd out on you, my friend.
4: <laughs> That's what I'm here for.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so Mike Furman and I had the luxury of having a dinner with you at Largo uh, oh, a yeah. couple years ago at a, at a, at a Wootstock show. Mm-hmm. And the the story you told was fascinating just about like where you started. So would you mind, You know, if you don't feel like it's redundant, please... Give us a little background, how Dr. D came to be, and just kind of what, what the business looked like in those days.
4: Well, I grew up a record freak. My parents had lots of records, and the record player became my favorite toy when I was oh seven, eight 8 years old. And uh, i buy all the records that I could afford, so when I discovered the Salvation Army store that had records for a nickel, this was 1953, my collection grew by leaps and bounds. Uh, I used to play disc jockey as a kid, and... Uh, then by the time I was a junior in high school, I had the biggest collection of records in the school, which included a lot of uh, then current rock and roll records. So I became the de facto disc jockey for all the sock hops at my (laughs) high school. So that was my first experience playing records for an audience.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, so you DJed for your audience. You were a DJ. yes.
4: You were a high school DJ. Right. <laughs> yeah, this was the 50s. We had one turntable. So, you know, n- none of this fancy stuff that they do today, of course, but had one turntable and a pile of 45s and... Uh and I'd play one, and, and then people just... I, I just had to fill the time while I hurriedly uh, queued up the next record, actually. I didn't queue them on. I just, uh, I just put the arm on the record, and uh, you heard a little scratch, and then you heard Elvis or Bill Haley or Chuck Berry or whoever it was. So I do dedications, things like that. Mm-hmm. So this was the first speech I gave to introduce records. Uh, then I was uh, heavily involved in my college radio station at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. all 10 watts of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 10 watt non-commercial station but you never know who might be listening you know anybody could be listening who just happened to be somewhere in the neighborhood of sure. Reed College you never knew so and and we followed all the FCC rules very carefully, things like that. And I went from playing classical music, which uh, the station originally, that was their format. Uh, I became the uh, student manager and introduced a more liberal format. We still played classical, but I played the records that I found in the thrift shops of Portland, along with all other kinds of weird things. And, and they uh,
2: let you do whatever you want.
4: They'd, yeah, they let me do whatever I want, you know, 10 and watts, <laughs> <laughs> Were you developing your on-air
2: personality at this point? Were you, was was was, was Doctor Demento born yet or? Uh, did uh, did your body split open and outstood Dr. Demento with the, the tux and the red tie and <laughs> the top hat? Uh,
4: Dr. Demento developed gradually. The uh, The name was given to me by the obscene Stephen Clean. That was the name he used uh, when I was uh, brought into the staff at KRRC, uh KPPC, excuse me, uh, in Pasadena, which is where the whole concept of the Dr. Demento show took root. Uh, I was Barry Hansen, my real name, but Stephen said, oh, everybody here has a crazy name. You can't be Barry Hansen. Uh, and gradually, I became Dr. Demento. That was the name that stuck.
2: So you, you took some sort of a potion, and then at night, uh, you would go out <laughs> as Dr. Demento. Yes.
4: Now, uh, at first, my, my earliest shows as Dr. Demento, the earliest shows that I have recordings of, I sounded much more studious. Of course, those were the days of laid-back FM programming. And yeah. the, the people at KPPC said, and now... <laughs> and things like that. So so I, I had a more studious, more level headed approach. But I would tell stories about the the records and about the songs and about the people who sang them. Uh and actually the the Doctor Numeno show started as a program of just rare records in general. Uh early rock and roll records, uh, like or the, the original records of songs that the Rolling Stones had covered. Yeah. Uh, so I'd play the original Muddy Waters version of something that the Stones had done. And uh, Sly Stone was huge at that time, Sly and the Family Stone. This is 1970. But Sly had been making records for about eight years before anybody knew who he was outside of San Francisco. So I had many of those early records. So as Sly was topping the charts with things like dance to the music and uh, everyday people, I would play his old stuff on the earliest records of his I know of. He and his brother were the Stewart brothers uh, sounding like the coasters. So I'd play those and and those were lots of fun. So I became known as this guy who was this fount of information about uh, early rock and roll. Uh, But it was only gradually that funny music took over the show. Uh, because I'd opened the phones to requests, and I found that a large number of the requests were for novelty records, things like the Purple People Eater sure. and the Monster Mash, and they're, they're coming to take me away. They're coming to me Napoleon the 14th. Yes, yeah. indeed. So uh, those, I, I found that the more of those that I played, the more popular the show got. So, uh so naturally, I became the funny music guy. I hadn't really intended to be when I started, but uh, by the time that I moved over to station KMET, where I think uh, Dan got to know the show, uh, it had become pretty much the funny music show.
2: Wow! And this was a time in the in the seventies where radio ruled. Yes. Like and and like and then all of a sudden, that's where we started to see like shock jock not not maybe shock jocks, but big personalities like your Wolfman Jacks. Oh yes. Uh, uh, guys like that. And you what you what you told Furman and I at dinner was that one of the one of the ways that you got hired somewhere was because you just had the most records of anyone and it was so fascinating to me that there was a time when simply having, the most physical of something, particularly music, (laughs) meant, well, we got to hire this guy because no one else has these records that that he has.
4: That was a big part of it, but I guess this personality that I gradually developed uh, had to have helped some.
2: I realized I just underscored that part of it, so let me backpedal (laughs) just a little bit and say that it was the records plus the personality at the same time. And this wealth of knowledge. I mean, that's the
5: thing that, um, you know, that I think appealed to me is that while i was learning about spike jones and alan sherman and stan freeberg and tom lehrer and all of these guys that you know as a 10 year old kid i wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to it was like oh i was you know uh without knowing it getting the backstory and getting the history and getting the the uh the influences of, you know, this person influenced this person. And if, well, if you're interested in, uh, you know, George Carlin, then, you know, you might want to check out Lenny Bruce. And all of this stuff that, you know, contextualized the recordings, you know, really is half of what got me excited, you know, in addition to the material itself.
4: Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I did. What this is going to be
5: a really
2: dumb question, really dumb question, but I think because you know a, a lot of young people listen to the show who have just grown up with the internet, but you you have this wealth of music knowledge. So where are you getting it? Where are you getting the lore and where are you getting the the stories and and the back information?
4: It just kind of leaks in. Uh, well, I read Billboard a lot. Mm-hmm. That, that was the that was the handiest, most available source of intelligence about records that was around. I think I discovered Billboard when I was was about 12. I'd go read it at the public library, and it would have the news of all the new records that came out, all kinds of music, including comedy. And so there would be lists and reviews of all the new records that were released in that given week. So I'd read about them, and I'd gradually get to know more about how the record business works. So that was one source. There weren't a whole lot of others up until, oh, the late 70s maybe there weren't a whole lot of books i mean now now there's probably 300 books about bob dylan alone right but, <laughs> but there were very few uh reliable books about music in those days especially current pop music you could read a few books about old jazz uh it wasn't until 1959 that the first decent book about blues came out oh yeah and uh, longer than that before there were decent books about country music but uh you could you could read about the older jazz, a little bit about the pop music of the Gershwin or Irving Berlin era. But so I, I read voraciously and, and uh, I was uh, also I go to the Salvation Army and nickel a record. I could take lots of chances, buy yeah. lots of stuff I'd never heard of and see what it sounded like or hear what it sounded like. And and. Uh, my mother, bless her, would sometimes clue me in about oh, this was very popular. I, I I used to love that singer, things like that. So that helped put it in context a little bit more. So when
2: did you when did you start to? Wh- what was your popularity surge like? When did that start to happen? And you realized oh, no, I'm actually a radio. I'm like I'm a, a radio personality that people know.
4: Uh, 1973 was the year it, it blossomed. That's the year that I started getting really good ratings. When I started. In commercial radio, I hardly knew what a rating book was. Right. But then the, the sales manager of KMET came up to me uh, at. Uh Uh, The station had done really well in one of the quarterly rating periods, and so they decided to give a party for all the jocks. They put us all on a bus and drove us to some restaurant and bar somewhere out out in the edge of town, and and we celebrated. And on the way, the station manager took me aside and said, Do you realize that uh, you have the most popular Sunday night show in all of Los Angeles? Oh, my God. AM, FM, everything, so... Uh, that that put me on the map, so to speak, and uh, that re- that led to a demand to syndicate the show because people figured, oh, if it does that well in Los Angeles, it'd probably play in Peoria. So, the syndication got started in the spring of '74.
2: Oh wow! And at that point, it's still just uh, rarities and not not so much novel. and not, not so oh much oh. Nov- it had
4: become pretty much funny
2: music. It was funny music. Yeah, like I
4: point. was saying, the more. Funny music I played, the more popular the show got. So by 73, it was probably 80, 90% funny stuff.
0: And was it still at a time uh, when to syndicate a radio show, they would have to press that radio show onto uh, vinyl and then send it to that station?
4: Uh, either that or reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah, uh, We started with reel-to-reel tapes and then switched to vinyl. And then switched back again. It's, it's a long <laughs> and convoluted story. Finally wound up on CD, of course. Yes.
5: See, this was a point of pride for me, having grown up here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. was that I, uh, I was uh, the beneficiary of hearing the four-hour KMET version of the Dr. Domeno show from 6 to 10 p.m. Sunday nights and the syndicated show was only the two-hour version, right. so that made me very uh, cocky with yeah. like my friends that grew up elsewhere, because like, oh, you only got a funny five. I grew up with the top
4: ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it was. The syndicated show was shorter. Uh, nobody seemed to want to take on a four-hour show, no matter how popular it was, so the two-hour show was easier to sell, and uh, so that's why the funny five, because we didn't want quite so much of the show to be taken up with a countdown. I wanted to have more time for free-form to play new stuff, things like like that so so that was the difference and there were a few records that i could get away with on kmet that i realized i probably couldn't get away with in mobile or salt lake city so there, there were a few oh like what uh the smoke off Shell Silverstein. really oh. that was yeah. never on the syndicated show not till later oh wow
2: yeah. any of the yeah. any cheech and chong stuff or any
4: uh well i had to like uh there, there's there's some there's some pieces where uh there's like one word that might be censored for yeah. the national show but not for the local show things like that. Did they
2: bleep back then? Or was it could you not even Oh yeah,
4: I remember. Oh, yeah, I bleeped. I got to be a very good bleeper.
2: Oh, good. <laughs> back in the
4: days of razor blades and real real tape. Oh yeah. I got to be an expert bleeper. Yeah, but... when
2: I worked at K-Rock yeah. by the even it was in the 90s and even at that point they still had the razor blades just lying around oh, the, sure. the studio uh, because even though they were on they were they were still running cars were the, just for
5: the coke Christ. yeah those,
2: <laughs> i don't think i think you're i think you're actually right especially at k-rock in the 80s and 90s i don't know by the time i got there they had mostly cleaned it up but uh yeah you would see just the razor blades all over all over the studio and and uh like god what a i mean i felt so spoiled i'm like what an awful way to have to edit a radio show is listen to like click and then splice together and then stick it like that what a, what a crappy process
4: well, I taught myself to edit earlier before I got to know how, before I figured out exactly how to edit a shit or a fuck. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to edit music. Uh, there was this piece called Honky Tonk by Bill Doggett that was a huge record in 1956. Honky Tonk Parts 1 and 2. Yeah. If you listen to the very end of Part 1, you can hear Part 2 starting. So I realized it was <laughs> really just one long performance that they had cut in two. Oh, wow. So uh, when I first got my reel-to-reel recorder, one of the first things I did was to uh, just take my record of Parts 1 and 2 and put it on tape and then edit it so that I could hear the whole six-minute performance all the way through.
3: Yeah.
2: By the way, I think everyone just lost their minds to hear you drop the F-bomb of and, and the S. Oh, my
5: God. And the, and the S. But, yeah. fucking shit. You know what's so funny uh, is I actually remember, and it's so funny because it seemed like the world was getting more puritanical and this was the indication for me that this was happening that you used to be able to play titties and beer, Frank Zappa's titties and beer and you used to be able to they used to be able to say titties and beer and somewhere I think in like the late 70s or early 80s it suddenly had to be the titties had to be bleeped out
4: that was a memo from the station manager he remembers yeah he had gotten complaints from somebody about it so he decided uh, he, he didn't want to do it but he said you're going to he apologized and said you're going to have to uh, edit that so it became cuckoos so I, I found a cuckoo clock sound effect and it went <laughs> oh, <is that> <laughs> it but was still just hilarious good. but now once again since I'm on the internet. It's titties and beer again. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to reserve the the, the f bombs for the end of the show, the last set of the show, in deference to people who listen with their families. But uh, internet radio, I don't have to worry so much about that anymore.
2: Well, that's kind of nice, like not, not having not having to be censored. But I, uh, the from I, I guess I came along to the show in the early '80s, maybe eighty eighty one, mm-hmm. eighty two is when I is when I started listening. But but you exposed me to. Um, the uh, the Ogden Edsel record and the uh, and Barnes and Barnes and you know Uh and I think you were at the same time that MTV was developing uh, MTV kind of had this snarky novelty video section and all of those songs I'm positive came from your show
4: oh yeah I even did a few uh, MTV specials myself oh man that's awesome
2: yes And did you so then what what so what's happening at that point now you're like ten years in MTV started radio still feels like it's going strong so you know what's what's your what's your daily life like at that point
4: I spent a lot of time as I still do uh, producing the show. I mean, I listen to new stuff, uh, whether I go out and buy records or find records. Uh, more and more today, it's stuff that comes online or yeah. sometimes in the mail. But uh, a large part of the my week is listening to new stuff and rediscovering old stuff and then eventually kind of sets come yeah. together in my mind
0: since uh since the show like veered more into just comedy music how, did you still keep up uh with uh, rock and roll and just uh, normal pop charts and... to
4: some extent that that occupied a little less of my time and my passions that it maybe did in the 60s but but still yeah yeah mm-hmm. did you know rodney uh rodney on the rock uh, yeah, Rod- Rodney Bingenheimer. Yes, we were generally competing with each other, but I- I'd see him when I'd go out.
2: Here's another. Um, here's oh, a song yeah. about fish heads. Yes. Oh, yeah, eat them up, yum. I ate fish heads last night.
0: <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> no, guys,
2: why are you laughing? I'm not kidding. Here's, this isn't a joke. Here's another female-fronted rock band. I
0: really dig. It's always female-fronted rock bands with Rodney.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent.
2: I love Rodney. I worked Excellent. with Rod. I worked with Rodney at K Rock. I did the overnight show at K Rock oh, for, cool. for a few years yes, in the '90s. Yes, that's right. Um, but by that point. You know, it was very strict playlists. You know, you, you, I, every time a song would come on, I didn't like, I'd try to slip in, uh, you know, like a frog song or something. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then I would always get caught. And they're like, nope, so you, got, you got to play the playlist.
4: Mm-hmm. But you
2: didn't, you, they let you do whatever you wanted. Yeah,
4: I fortunately established myself in the ratings uh, before the time that KMET started tightening its format. Yeah. And I watched them tighten their format in an incremental fashion. Uh, When I started there, they had every kind of record you can imagine. They'd even play classical music. It was pretty much what had uh, happened at uh, KPPC, the free-form station where the Dr. Demento show started. So the disc jockeys had this huge variety of music available. And then one one night I came in to do my show, and I noticed that all the – Classical records were stacked out in the hall. <laughs> uh, oh, they have been removed from the station and just stacked out in the corridor. Because seriously, guys? Fuck Brahms. Yeah.
2: Fuck <laughs>
4: seriously. What's he done
2: lately? Lately. No.
4: I, think the, uh, I think the uh, country music was the next to go, and then most of the jazz... Uh, kind of the last thing to go before I realized that they were just going to be rock and nothing else. Kind of the last thing to go was the Joni Mitchell kind of music. Yeah, and even Volk then, rock. even then they would uh, uh, they would let uh, B. Mitchell Reed play a little Joni Mitchell during his noontime show.
2: That's so interesting to me that there was the, that. There's almost we've almost kind of come back to that of just the idea of like playlists uh, of, Mm -hmm. you know, just like a like a completely disparate playlist, like a shuffle, like shuffle playlists, that there was a time when radio stations kind of did that. And then they just got super focused, like we're only going to play this kind of rock for this specific demo. What was it like? What drove what drove that?
4: It happened in stages, uh, but mostly it was uh, to make it easier to sell commercials KMET and other stations like it realized that the bulk of their audience was young males. Mm -hmm. And they came to the conclusion that if they just stuck to music that young males are known to like that they would get a more secure hold on that audience and by presenting themselves to uh, commercial sponsors as somebody who had the secure hold on that audience it would make them make it easier for them to sell commercials for cars and beer and other things that guys like yeah. and at the same time top 40 music which had one actu- at once actually been the top 40 in the 50s a top 40 station played the 40 top selling singles almost regardless of what kind of music they were but uh, that gradually changed when they realized that top 40 stations appealed most strongly to young women.
2: Oh, and so gotcha. you've got
4: – now, nowadays, top 40 is uh, considered an almost entirely female-leaning format. Yeah. So you get records that uh, young women like.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a There was a, a station in Hawaii called Radio Free Hawaii, which was this guy Norm's idea of just uh, – there was ballot boxes – all across the island and you could fill out a whole thing about what you wanted to hear. And it was all this, just like the people uh, formatted the station and mm-hmm. it was, it it held on for a long time, but it just never made money. Like no ads would, were uh-huh. sold and it was just a, but it was a shame because it was such a, like yeah. you can find out about so much music through this station and it just doesn't seem like it's a way that it's not a good business model, which is a
2: shame. What's the state? I'm like, is radio as bad off now as, as I think it is, or is it actually still doing uh, worse?
4: Probably. Okay, <laughs> it's still making money, and there are still some very talented people in radio, but. Uh but the the, uh, the Dr. Demento show has now migrated to cyberspace sure uh, dr <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we do the show for dr Demento.com, and that's where you hear it and uh, we charge a small fee for listening to it and that's uh, that's how it becomes a going business for us.
2: Oh good, good. so you're still able to to continue to do this. Do you put out the albums
4: every year? Uh, we did until recently as you as you probably know, the demand for CDs has been a little soft, so right. We haven't made a new one since '09. I'd like I'd like to do another one. It's fun to do those things, and people seem to enjoy them. But uh, do you recommend we, playlists to people at any point? I've I've been I've been meaning to do that on iTunes. I haven't gotten around to it yet, but uh, I've been meaning to do that.
2: Oh, you know what we should do is when I. I'm going to talk to the iTunes people and see when we put this podcast out, maybe I'll see if they'll let you like do a comedy playlist or something. Uh, that would yeah, be, that'd be, that'd cool. be really that'd be really Yeah,
4: cool. it would be something. Uh, people have told me, hey, you should uh, work out some things like this. So, yeah, sure. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Who were some of the – well, I don't know if I can make it happen. It's just something <laughs> I would like to make happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'd also like $20 million. Yes. Can I just have that? <laughs> yeah. But there's probably a better chance I can help you with the iTunes thing. Uh, but who are some of the artists that you're seeing in the in the 70s that broke? And, and was there, you know, were you able to help some of them cross over to, to mainstream? And what, what were some of those examples?
4: Well, definitely Weird Al Yankovic. Well, of course, yeah. Yes. But
2: not until, that that was uh, early 80s, right? Late 70s, early 80s. Yes.
4: There were, there were others who would have... Uh Hits that I definitely started. Uh, One of them was Junk Food Junkie. I remember that. Larry Gross. So that crossed over and became a hit single. Yeah. Another one that uh, I pretty much started was Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer by by Elmo and Patsy. Elmo
2: and Patsy, I remember it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
4: So uh, as, as far as bankable mainstream success. Uh no the doctor Demento show kind of remains a, a thing for uh, music geeks nerds and how did this. how did weird
2: al how did weird al fall into like how how did you find him
4: uh he found me basically but yeah. but then i this i picked him out of the teeming crowd and elevated i realized that he had unique talents uh, uh he had more going for him than most of the other people who would send me cheap cassettes like Dan passternet but- <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> did you ever send in a
4: cassette?
2: I
5: did. What you did? Yeah. Do you still have it? Sure, sure. I mean, you know what the funny thing. We have got to play
4: it on oh, this man, episode. He made a record. He made a seven-inch EP.
5: You've got to let us play something from that on this on this show yeah, later. Absolutely not. That is bullshit. <laughs> you've got to let us play something. It's Please. an EP
4: with a blue label. Oh, really? No. I,
5: yeah, I did two records. I did one in 1980 when I was 11. Oh my and god. And then the follow-up. Uh, in 82, where actually one side, and this, I don't know if this has ever been repeated, one side played at 33 and a third, and the other side played at 45. <laughs> I, I thought about doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I did that in 1982. Yeah. My oh my gosh. You've
2: got, come on, you've got to give us one track to play at the end of the show. No, there
5: was one song that um, uh, The Good Doctor was, was kind enough to play, and then got onto the top ten, I don't know, like, Five or six times over mm-hmm. the course of a year or so, um, you know, it was probably just just uh, the appeal of it was an eleven-year-old kid almost saying dirty words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it was that it uh, was uh, quite clever, as I recall. Yeah, I don't cream. know that it was terribly uh, artful. Yeah, definitely inspired by shaving cream. Yeah. you know, I mean, that's the thing is that you know, at that age, all I was doing was absorbing everything that the doctor was putting out, and then you know, uh, um, you know, appropriating it and you know, <laughs> squeaking you should, it out at my. You should repress him in mono. <laughs>
2: I still, I mean, for me, it's you know, you know, just being getting to be pals with guys like you and Weird Al. Like it's so, it's so mind melty to me because you were such a huge part of. I mean, you know, as as a young kid before the goddamn internet came along, you really <laughs> had to. It was really hard to find that kind of stuff if you were a comedy nerd. It was very hard. You really it was like a quest, which in and of itself was rewarding because you could unearth like, oh, no one else is gonna see this. You know, so my world consisted of like Mad Magazine and uh and, and, and the Doctor Demento show and then and then whatever, you know,
5: Al T V when they would play it.
4: Well that uh, certainly helped my show. This stuff was rare.
5: Yeah. No, I got so into this that okay, so I still have brown Notebooks where I would transcribe every song that was on every Doctor Domeno show from I think 1978 to 1982 something wow. like that like center cut of my youth and literally my goal was for every song that like made it into the top ten or certainly the funny 50 at the end of the year. I would seek out. I would go to record stores, Moby Disc, you know, yeah. uh, um, Rhino, the original Rhino, Rhino. on Westwood Boulevard, right. Smart, Tower, uh, oh, of course, Tower, Aaron's, yeah, um, Go Boy Records in the South Bay, Penny Lane, Penny Lane, yeah, all of these places. And then what I would do is I would draw a circle around the ones that I was <laughs> able to purchase that were on the Doctor Domeno Top Ten because they all. M- and by the way, I didn't need to buy them because I still have I still have boxes of cassette recordings of all of the Dr. Domeno shows that I, you know, collected through all those years so I had them all on tape but I had to have the records I did a similar thing
0: where when the uh, 20th anniversary uh, uh, double disc CD compilation mm-hmm. came out they put out that was when I, I came into awareness uh, I tried to get a record from each of the people, uh, each of the artists oh, on okay. the compilation I was like alright I gotta find Stan Freeware, okay I gotta find, you know it was just every single one I had to buy I, and there was a lot that just I couldn't find. Were you with friends well, with
4: all I, these guys? Uh, most of them, of course I did play things that never came out commercially at all or it come out commercially only on 78s, uh, 20, 30 years earlier. Uh, but yes, uh, to answer your other question, I was fortunate to get to know a good many people, the younger artists and also, uh, Stan Freeberg, uh, Tom, Tom Lair. Lair. Yes.
2: <gasps> Tell me about Tom Lair.
4: Well, he was, uh, if, if you asked him, if you would asked him, uh, Back in the 60s, to state his occupation, he would say uh, instructor in mathematics, yeah. mathematics at Harvard or MIT, University of California, Santa Cruz, wherever he happened to be at the time. He was just incidentally, except for a couple of years, just incidentally a singer. He, he, I don't think he ever liked performing very much, but he realized that he had a gift for writing wonderful satiric songs. And when he was inspired, he'd do that, uh, made these records, uh, sold them. Uh, he, he was really the most successful do it yourself artist of any kind in the 1950s.
2: Oh, yeah. He was yeah. basically pressing his own records. Right. And, I mean, he'd go in and rec- I know, I know, I'd heard that he would go in and just in a three hour session, just record all the songs and press the record and be done. And the, 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 his piano skills are insane yeah. and yes. his diction there is not everything that tom Lass says there's not one wasted syllable everything is is exactly as
5: it should be and he he's such a he's he, i i just i've always wanted to and the precision of the lyrics i mean yes. it was great musicality but also the internal rhymes and and, yeah. and i mean it was just such literate
4: satire. Well, as you grew up on Tom Liver, he grew up with Gilbert and Sullivan. Sure. And Danny Kaye. Sure. That was his other big
2: inspiration. Yeah, he would do a lot. He would do these, like, these. if Gilbert and Sullivan played, you know, this by, you know, and then he would go into the Playing different genres of, you know, for, for specific songs.
5: Did he ever? Because he had a lot of, you know, what could be considered controversial or transgressive kind of material, you know, you know the Vatican rag and the old right. dope peddler. Step I mean, into that small confessional. Yes.
2: And the <laughs> guy who's got religion will tell you if your sin's original. Like those rhymes are fucking perfect. Yes. <laughs> Drink I, the wine and chew the wafer. Yeah. Oh, is that. Uh, 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 If it's not, try playing it safer. Take the wine and chew the wafer. Two, Two, four, six, eight. Time
5: to transubstantiate. transubstantiate. Okay, we're in the other level. We're nerding out. Well, uh, there (laughs) are
4: some comedians who do what they do. Largely through improvisation. Yeah, uh, that's not Tom Lehrer.
2: No, he seems very precise, very and, uh, measured.
4: Now there've uh, there been a couple of uh, concerts that have been just recently rediscovered and made av- made available on YouTube or in one case on DVD. So you now have all three or four different performances available of some of his better known songs. And the thing when you compare them is not the differences, but how similar they all are. Oh wow! <laughs> so why do you I think mean they're all stopped. wonderful? Uh, he wasn't inspired anymore. Uh, I don't think he hasn't quite stated this in public, but I think he just got—he was very perfectionist about his performances, and uh, when a performance didn't go exactly right, he'd feel really down about it, and uh, so this got to be a strain. That—that's—that's that's my guess. Well,
5: I mean, oh, it's amazing he was so prolific <clears throat> for such a brief period of time, and he's still
4: alive. Yeah, he is yeah. still alive. I think he still teaches. He yeah. just retired. Oh, he did just retire? About three years he ago. He must be, yeah. what, 80 by now? He was born in 28, so he's 84, yeah. <sighs> Jesus. Yeah, he still lives in Cambridge, right? Uh, he spends half the year in Cambridge in the same house he's lived in for uh, since the early 50s. Wow, spends the other half of the year in uh, Santa Cruz, California, where he did. Where he taught for the last 15, 20 years of his teaching career.
2: If you ran into him, if someone ran into him and was like, "Oh my God, Tom Lehrer, you're amazing! I, I loved everything you do." Would he be like, "Please don't talk to me," or do you, or, would is he pretty open about it?
4: I think he'd be cordial.
2: Yeah, He's, cordial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank o- you. Open
4: to me. Yeah. So you get so. Uh, uh,
2: who else? Uh, who else did you really did you really bond with over the years?
4: Oh, Stan Freeburg. I'm, I'm having uh, lunch with him in a couple of weeks, so oh, he's still—he's he, 86, but uh, he remarried recently, and his sure. aunt, <laughs> uh, and uh, his uh, new younger wife has kind of invigorated him a little bit. I—I I don't know if he's performing again, but. Uh, uh, he was what do you, what do you he mean by a... performing? Oh, he, he made comedy, then. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, I, sorry. I know,
2: I know. You probably, yeah, you know.
5: Well, well, he said invigorated. I,
4: I didn't know,
2: know what that. No, I had. know. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. You know, It
5: was a fair question.
2: Uh, uh,
4: I'm sorry. He, he told me he just got back from Comic Con, so he did something there. I'm not, Oh wow! Tim Freeberg sure was at Comic Con. How did he that? That's what he. That's what he told me when we made our lunch date.
2: And so, what do you, you know, what what are you thinking about? You know, do you think the the internet explosion was a good thing? You know, because obviously anyone can just make a a funny song or video and distribute it? Or is it sort of like, well, kind of steps on my toes a little bit? Well,
4: when you were talking about how hard it was to find some of this music that I'd played, uh, probably the only thing harder in those days in the 70s was selling it. Mm -hmm. Like Barnes & Barnes had the biggest hit in the history of my show. Oh, wow. Along along with Dead Puppies. Those two are neck and neck. Yeah. Uh, So Barnes & Barnes decided to press up 3,045s. I think they still have several hundred of them. Oh, fish oh, heads? Wow. Yeah, right. Because uh, the only way that they could sell these records was by doing consignments. And one store might take five, another store might take ten if they were lucky. So you just have to go store by store trying to sell this stuff mm. in the days before Amoeba or anybody like that's, that. That's so. what
5: I did with the, the records that I
2: made. So uh, so, a uh, 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 Dead Puppies, Kinko the Clown, that, that guy's name was Bill Frenzer? Yes. Bill Frenzer. I, I actually saw him perform at the Steve Allen Theater once, and he did Dead Puppies, and it mm. fucking blew my mind. But what, uh, what was that guy's story?
4: Well, he was from Omaha, and uh, the Ogden... Edsel Wahalia Blues Ensemble Mondo Bizarro Band yeah. was originally a troupe, a troupe of 12 singers and comedians who would do comedy sketches mm-hmm. in the uh, theaters of Omaha, Nebraska. And they had a circuit. I think they got as far as Dallas and up to the Twin Cities. But they do, they were big stars in the local comedy world, and a couple of them also started a morning radio show. So so that was their trip. Uh, they never quite went national, but they got big enough to make an LP yeah. uh, which included dead puppies. yeah they even came out here to Glendale, California, where there at that time was a right recording studio with a pipe organ. They booked that studio especially to do the pipe organ on dead puppies
3: <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs>
4: which really. Makes that as far as an arrangement goes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes. The song just—it
2: ends bigger than any song ever. <laughs> the, the end of Dead Puppies.
4: Yes, it's kind of the power ballad of the Doctor. <laughs> <Day>. But it's <laughs> not. <kind of, laughs> <laughs> I used to ask people to wave lighters, and now, of course, they wave cell phones. They wave their <laughs> cell
2: phones and their, their, their lighter <laughs> application. Um, but uh, it, was it was it tough for these guys, just in terms of because they're not really coming into the system in the normal way, particularly at a time when the the record industry really did control touring and, and the whole the whole system. So how did these guys Make a living? Were they able to tour? Or was it just sort of like, oh, they kind of got to say they got played on your radio show, but they didn't really make a living doing that?
4: Well, Barnes and Barnes were never much into live performance. Right. That they, was Bill Mumy too, yeah, right? right. Bill yeah. had his other career as an actor and yeah. a musician, mm-hmm. and uh, as a comics artist too. So, or a comics writer rather. Yeah. Uh, Robert Hamer, who's the other half of Barnes and Barnes, he had he had a gig too that he did. So, Bill friends, well, there Bill friends are since. Ogden Edsel, more or less, broke up. He's had on and off success as a comedian. He does gigs, he does corporate gigs, and that sort of thing. Yep. There are other people who I play on my show who have fairly uh, prosperous careers as working comedians, doing comedy clubs. Uh, Henry Phillips would be of one. yeah. yeah and Henry. Tim, right. Tim Cavanaugh's another one. Yeah. Yep. And. Uh,
2: you play the Paul and Storm, and oh uh, yes, and yeah,
4: of course. Okay, I hmm. got to ask because I
5: truly this guy at least for people in L.A., was something of a local legend, but really
4: came to, I think, greatest prominence on your show. What was Wildman Fisher's story? Wildman Fisher, well, there's a documentary about him called Derailroaded, which I'm in, along with Weird Al and uh, Barnes & Barnes and many other people who knew him. He, he's a paranoid schizophrenic, was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic as a teenager, was institutionalized for the first time after attacking his mother, so he's, he was in and out of mental hospitals for most of his life. So already funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I I don't know if he ever thought of himself. No, he never thought of himself as a comedian. He was He's a singer. He's a songwriter and a singer. And he thought he was the best damn songwriter and singer on the face of the earth. He was convinced of that. He was a true outsider artist. If you've ever read Erwin uh, Chusid's book, Songs in the Key of Z, he, he's the... He's the epitome of an outsider artist, somebody who is pretty well convinced that he is a great artist. Uh, the public begs to disagree, but uh, most of the outsider artists, at least the ones in Irwin's book, have achieved at least a small degree of fame uh, because there are people who are connoisseurs of this kind of music. Same kind of people who collect song poem records. Song poems. Oh,
2: the song poems are
5: so. (laughs) But But no. But but my name is Larry. Was a huge hit. Just to finish
4: uh, with Wildman Fisher, he wrote probably or at least made up. He didn't necessarily write them down. Probably made up a thousand songs in his life, of which a great many were recorded. uh, A couple dozen of them on the first album he did with Frank Zappa. Zappa was convinced that he was great. That he was well worth a two-record album. Convinced. uh, well, he, he kind of controlled everything that came out on that label, even though it was distributed by Warner Brothers. He picked the artist. He said, I want to record Wildman Fisher. And uh, Wildman might have continued recording for uh, Bizarre Records for a lot longer, except uh, one day he got mad because he wasn't a big star after that record came out. And he uh, I understand he threw a flower, pl- a flower pot at Moon—no, uh, at— uh, Gail Zappa's wife while while she was holding Moon who was then a baby in her arms just barely missed the baby so Zappa said get out of my house and refused to have anything more to do with him that's probably wise yes Well, did, like, did he ever display so, any of that kind of behavior when, when you were around him? No, I think Barnes & Barnes could probably tell you a few stories. And if you see this film, de it, which I recommend, uh, there's more stories about him. It's a very moving, it's one of the best documentaries I ever saw. I was really proud to be in it.
5: Uh, yeah, he was sort of like, hmm. uh, if you guys remember Wesley Willis? Of course yeah, I remember oh, Wesley that's Willis. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to bring up. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he to me was like a generation before Wesley Willis. That's kind of, he was like, that guy 10 years before. And Daniel Johnston to an
0: extent too, just as far as the paranoid schizophrenic goes of a guy just continually like recording songs in an an asylum, you know? And he has a great documentary out too, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, Wesley Willis once, uh, my friend put on a show for him in Reno and uh, at the end of the show, they go back to a house uh, where he was going to stay, and uh, Wesley Wills just went straight into a, ho- a room and locked the door, and he's like, all right, I guess he just wants to go to bed. In the morning, a car had come and pick up Wesley, and they go into the room, and all the furniture had just been pushed up to the, to the edges of the room, and then there was just uh, in the middle of the room a pile of shit.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that was nice of him to move the furniture <laughs> out Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think he was just being...
5: Considerate. He was being considerate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. We, but we all know this is going to happen. But just so you know, I'm going to politely yeah. move all your furniture out of the way. And just put and it, it, it in the and direct And center. he called the uh, the booking agent, and he was like, hey, this happened. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you
0: <laughs>
5: could say he dung-shwayed the room. <laughs> hey! Hey, hey, hey Dan Pasternak, Dude, write that down and put music under it. What are we doing here? <laughs> Dr. Demento's right there. You got a hit. I,
2: sh- yeah. I should close with that, should I? Shway. dung Shui dung Shui. I'm closing oh. with that. Yeah, you never want the tip of the shit to aim the at the door, because it's bad dung Shui. <laughs> You always, uh, uh, yeah. always wanted to curl counterclockwise, paint <laughs> your brown. I
4: feel very fortunate that I've been able to do this radio show for all these years, which is home to both Tom Lehrer and Wildman Fisher, sometimes in the same set. <laughs> <laughs> Did you deal with that a lot? Were there
2: a lot of guys? I mean, because obviously, you know, when you start getting into comedy, songs are weird, you know, novelty songs. That some of me were like, eh, this guy might be a little on the crazy side. Did did, did people kind of stalk you over the years?
4: Nothing, a little. Not that I know of. I, I never really felt endangered by any of my fans. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Did you? Well, uh, I mean, there were some that, that drove me a, a little batty for a while, and there were some that. Damn, Pastor Neck. Uh, <laughs> guilty. How did you guys? How did you guys? Well, mostly, mostly you were on the phone. And, of course, I had my helpers.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you answered phones. How did you how did you actually meet up? Well, the way I first met the good doctor, I was uh I think it was in the 6th grade and I went to used to do like live uh broadcasts and I went to one at uh, Tower Records on Sunset Oh, yeah, right. in 1980 and you were kind enough to put me on. I think I sang uh a version of uh, the Spike Jones song You Wanna Buy a Bunny mm-hmm. and uh, you were very encouraging and I met a bunch of the people from your cast on that broadcast and stayed in touch with them and um, um, Mike Meyer not Mike Myers of SNL but Mike Meyer of Meyer and Drake mm-hmm. who had a number of hits on your show like the Monster Rash and the Mr. Bill song um, were kind enough to produce the first two songs that I made, and then I worked for my mom all that summer at her factory in downtown LA. She had a manufacturing company, and I made enough money to press 545s, uh, and then later that year was when you first played um, uh, Dan's song, mm-hmm. which was, uh, yeah. so I was, again, I was 11 years old.
2: <laughs> we're so playing whatever that song is <laughs> at the end of this recording because now i've said it's going to happen and people are going to demand it so chris so. no one is going to demand it dan the wall we the we the internets are going to be clogged with requests
0: <laughs> this is what dan does though like he, he doesn't show anyone his songs and he even ha- pulled off all of his stand-up appearances off of the youtube no, there's actually still a couple. You did. There. You told me you called up like a place. and You're like, can you take that down, please?
5: No, 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 no. There were, there was uh, there was tape that I didn't want. Uh,
0: just available.
5: Available to people. Yes, from yeah. MTV. I just think if more
2: people were comfortable <laughs> masturbating <laughs> on the internet, Dan, you would you'd be okay. You know, like you, you,
5: everyone does it. It's yeah. not a big deal. Oh, I know which one you're talking about now. All right, now I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> <out there. laughs> you, you know what? You've got Dr. Domeno here to talk to. Why do we, why do we need to focus attentions on me? Because it's funny to watch you squirm a little bit. All yeah, right. Because it's adorable. Um, Look at these cheeks. He's <laughs> getting all red, you adorable son of a bitch. But Dr. Demento is here. Our hero, Dr. Demento.
2: It is pretty crazy that, uh, you know, that after all this time that you still, you know, you're still able to, to do what you do how how's how's it been going with the internet well show? it's been
4: doing fine yeah it's uh the, we s- seem to sell a few more shows all the time so uh so yeah it's keeping us going doing pretty well actually making more money than i did off radio for the last few years of that so oh wow yeah.
2: it's it, do you is it a it's a subscription model yes but you know do you have are there sponsors who want to come in and go hey
4: we want to bring you, you know get involved we have we spun our wheels for a while trying to em, trying to emphasize that before we realized hey we're actually not doing too badly uh, with with the subscriptions and people can buy one show at a time too yeah so we haven't really tried that lately but uh, we may try it again sometime I mean yeah. it seems to make the internet work I mean yeah uh, the, every every day the internet seems to figure out more ways to expose me to ads while I try to get the news or something like that yeah so
5: who was so. the last person you got excited about like in the same way that like when you first heard like weird al's cassettes that he was sending you
4: oh uh let's see there was logan whitehurst and uh lemon demon who had this uh, the biggest hit of the new century on my show was a lemon demon song called the, the ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny <laughs> You might have heard that. It's
2: Hard and firm. Oh, thank you, Doctor D. Oh, they're they're up there too. Yeah. Hey, look, it's our buddy Matt Bennett. Hey, Matt Bennett. Yeah.
1: Hi, how you doing?
2: How are you? Hi. This this is Doctor Demento. This I, is Matt hi, Bennett. Hey,
4: Matt Bennett, nice hi, Matt. to meet you. All right, hi, it's a pleasure. Yes, big fan.
2: Matt Matt Bennett uh, Matt Bennett is a, a fine uh, comedian friend of ours who's mm-hmm. on a little television program right. called Victorious mm-hmm. and who does a lot of stuff here at the theater. Have you have you guys you've guys never met before? No,
1: no, no. This is awesome. All right. Cool. Super cool. Nice to meet you. About?
2: We're just talking about comedy. Give Matt Bennett a mic. Hi. God damn it. <laughs> Katie, give him a mic. Katie, do it. Katie, faster. So exciting. Yeah, this is great. So, Matt Bennett is he? Matt Bennett's like 20 years old or something. Mm-hmm. What are you, 20? I'm 20 right Jesus now. Jesus Christ. First of all, fuck yourself. Uh, second of all, um, how do you, so you are, you've been a Dr. Demento fan as well.
1: I've been for a very long time. I have a well, couple of you. your records as well. Oh, right. Um, all right. All the you. ones with Weird Al and everything on it. But, My hat's you know, off to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> he just picked up his top hat. So that <laughs> makes the joke. It is technically <laughs> off. I mean, yeah. it's all no, right. No, it really right is. Now. It was on the table, now but you know what? Too. Now it's even cooler. Um, but yeah, so
4: I think that you what you did was super great for everything. Oh, thanks. What, what are you working on now? Are you doing anything cool? Well, we, we do the show. That's the main thing that I do. I, I do a new show every week for drdemento.com and uh, be recording another one uh, tomorrow morning my voice holds up
2: so. yeah I mm-hmm. know yeah, we've made you talk a lot of <laughs> yes. how
4: did you so as, as a young as a young kid who's never not
2: known the internet mm-hmm. Matt Bennett how did you how did you get exposed to, to good, Matt 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 plays uh, hilarious songs as well I he's, he's they is they a musical like comedy guy well, yeah. so uh, maybe you can maybe you can slide him some stuff there Matt. I would Burn love that oh, yeah do. so what uh, how did you how did you first get exposed
1: um, I, it's a weird story I went to uh, private school and they made us all change in this little change room when I was younger and all the kids were oh, talking like, school. yeah so, so Sort of. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Methodist school, so oh, it was okay. a little bit different. But uh, they, the kids were like, "Oh, there's this crazy song. It's by this guy named Weird Al Yankovic. You're gonna love it." I'm like, "Oh, what is it?" And it's like it's the Phantom Menace. Like he just rips, you know, like he like describes it all in one song. So then I started listening to Weird Al, and then I just. Start listening to everything like fish heads and just anything really yeah. and it's you like dr demento songs
2: and you uh and, and so you've listening to the dr demento radio show was that was this kind of an inspiration for you to pursue what uh, what oh, you ended up doing
1: absolutely yeah i mean um it sort of all fit in you know it was it was sort of kid friendly um but also you know just w- what i liked about it was you could pretty much get away with anything in those days if you just mm-hmm. called it, it was sort of like a parody. So, you know, you could make fun of something directly and under, you know, under the guise of a parody, you'd be okay to make fun of it. And as a kid, that's like, I can make fun of anything as long as I yes. call it a parody. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, this is yeah. great. Now I found a way. So I'm like, oh, no, mom, I wasn't, you know, making fun of so-and-so. It was a parody. Oh. So I found like a loophole through these songs to, you know, to start comedy. That works with the government, stuff. too. Yes. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't not... ripping off the song. It was a parody. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, the so,
4: two live crew case kind of legitimized all that. That's right. Yeah. The, two li- the, you mean- Supreme, the Supreme Court decided that parody was fair use. Right. So after that, uh, publishers had very little recourse. Even if they didn't like a parody, there wasn't very much they could do about
2: it. Are you talking about uh, when because they, they used the Miso Horny sample, or are you yeah. talking about two live Jews, which covered... No.
4: <laughs> do you remember two live Jews? Oh, yes. Yeah,
2: two yeah. live Jews. Do you remember? No. I don't think so. It was. I think it was. I, I'm, I'm, you think I'm doing a bit? I'm not. There I was a parody That's, song I've heard of it called like "Me So Hungry" or something. Yeah. yeah. And it was the the group was called Two Live Jews. And it was like "Me So Hungry." Oh. Like it was. The, 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 a yeah, Their, their big
4: hit was yeah. "Oi, it's so humid." Oh, oh yeah, yeah, sauna <laughs> in here.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't about food. I don't know. But anyway, Two Live Jews was an actual. Yeah, I think
5: Al cornered the market on all the food-based food. comedy. So, yeah. Isn't that
2: funny that 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 that? I mean, it is another testament to Al is that. He has been the that guy, and no one like if anyone else does, they're like. Ah, fuck you! That's Weird Al's thing. You know what I mean? Like it's amazing that he's <laughs> been th- able to corner like, that market more than yes. thirty years. More than yeah. thirty years, and he's mm-hmm. still
1: relevant. Even all the, f- yes. the fakers on, you know, Limewire and Kazaa and Napster and stuff. All the people. Yeah, yeah, It all just gets labeled under Weird Al. Because, yeah, that's you know. True. Napster, you must have been. A- <laughs> I had Napster. Napster. Was, I was there for the start of it. Two thousand. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. But he's twenty. Yeah. So, so like- two thousand, it makes him eight years old.
5: Don't he don't was taking. He was taking a Napster during Napster. He was taking. Hey, wait. Let's talk. You know Times were so long.
2: This here's a really fun. Way to bum everyone out. You guys ready? Uh, Matt, what year were you born? 1991. <gasps> oh, I just got diarrhea in my own stomach. Yeah. Well, the, the
4: he was that born with a computer in his hand. He really was a yeah. Game Boy. <laughs> but,
2: oh I'm gonna Wesley Willis
1: this room in a minute. Here, I'm just gonna move the furniture. Just push
2: it back. Yeah. <laughs> I move the
1: furniture. But think about it. so you're how old are you now, Chris? Older than you. Older than me? Yeah. I know that because Jonah, you were talking about just turning thirty. Just turn 30 so there's yeah. ten years between us, and yeah. I think there's ten years between you guys. Too. God damn it. So <laughs> I, I'm just saying I'm just saying that that's the same age gap, so we're all sort well, of connected. No, this I, have, I have no. A when that... I
5: first met Jonah Ray, Jonah was your age because yeah. he worked as a writer's assistant on a pilot that we did for Showtime ten years ago, and the producers had to send Jonah out. For a bottle of prop tequila for a bit, but because he was not yet 21, yeah. Kulap uh, Scott Ackerman's then girlfriend, now wife, had to go with you. To buy the bottle. It's of like they, they asked me. I was like, "I'm right
0: on it," and then I had to go. Hey, can you? Um, yeah.
2: I need to help. You,
3: need you to needed an it. assistant for the ride. Yeah, exactly. Assistant. Yeah. God, can yeah. you
2: imagine there was a time you couldn't buy alcohol?
0: Oh, don't even remind. I mean, me. sorry.
2: I know
5: it's a. Problem. I don't think Shaving that ever. I don't think that ever stopped him. I mean, that,
4: oh, <laughs> I mean, every so often I'll play a song from the prohibition era and have to explain what it was <laughs> oh, wow. and, uh, segue into something about marijuana and... what kind of comedy music was going on in the third like wh- what was the
2: beginning of comedy music like as contemporary comedy music as we know it
4: oh uh, as we know it well, you might say it started with the beginning of records. That was the first time that a, a performance could be commercialized, and there were comedy songs from pretty much the beginning of records. Uh, a lot of politically incorrect comedy songs oh, of in, course, the, yeah, yeah. In, in the older days because it was very popular to make fun of other races or other, uh, or, or, or other ethnic groups.
0: And, yeah. Still is like, in Hawaii.
4: Still yes. <laughs> very popular in Hawaii. Uh, so, so there was a lot of that. Uh, Comedies, we know it. Well, Spike Jones was a big step in that direction. Yeah, uh, the who became hugely popular during and after World War II, and made records that were huge hits and put a lot of effort into making each one perfect yeah had a great stage show too with a cast of 50 oh my Whoa. god and then after that we get the generation of uh, stan freeberg and tom lehrer uh, yeah. very, very different artists but definitely contemporaries appealing to a lot of the same people uh then we segue into the era of novelty rock and roll music uh, with uh, the Purple People Eater and they're coming to take me away, et cetera, et cetera. And, Goodman uh, and Buchanan, all the cut-in yeah, Buchanan, records? Yeah the, yeah, the Flying Saucer records, 56. Uh, and then the era of uh, stand-up comedy uh, begins in the 50s and really catches fire in the early 60s with Bob Newhart, Bob Newhart. Shelley Berman et al. And uh, so you're getting a quick history of comedy then. <laughs> uh Parody has always been around. Uh, Homer and Jethro did a lot of that in the nineteen fifties. They would have to ask permission from everybody, but they did it. Uh, and then you get Weird Al kind of, uh, well, Alan Sherman before that in, in the early sixties. Uh, yeah, he did he a ton was of huge. parody. Yeah. He did a ton of parodies, uh, mostly parodies of public domain stuff, classical music and folk songs. Oh, that's right. Until he got big enough so that uh, people would listen to him, like the first really extended parody concept he did was an album based on My Fair Lady, and the publishers turned him down. They wouldn't let him put it out. So uh, Warner Brothers Records, which wanted to sign him, uh, said, well, why don't you do an album of folk songs? So he did. And the rest is history. Oh, wow.
2: Mm. Oh, wow. That is, that is pretty, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Just like I love the idea of someone running around
4: like, I want to do a parody of My Fair Lady. Like, uh, what? That's what he did. He wrote the, a complete full-length thing, a parody of every song. Did it ever get put out? Yes, much later. On, on a box set that uh, uh, Rhino Handmaid put out. What was it called? Uh, my... It was it was a kind of a Yiddish takeoff on the title. Was oh, this of my Fairfax lady?
5: Uh, no, I was, that was different. No, because there was no, a thing called was, my Fairfax yeah, lady. Really? Yeah. yeah,
4: Mickey Katz I think did that. Oh, okay, but, but Alan, that wasn't okay. Alan Sherman's was different. Uh, I've got my first mental block of the day on the name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're doing all right. Yeah. But where, So
2: where do you put where do you put groups like Firesign Theater? You know, like, is this more sketch, just more... Ra- I, oh. mi- I miss, like, like good... That's why I love Thrilling Adventure Hour so much. It's just, like, good radio-friendly sketch comedy.
4: Yeah, well, Firesign Theater, their inspiration was radio from the, the days of drama on radio. <clears throat> the uh, Dragnet and Green Hornet era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they kind of adapted that for a hipper generation. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a chemically altered generation that had something <laughs> to do with it. And also took advantage very, very skillfully of recording technology, layering all these things. So there'd be three or four different things going at once, which is something that Cheech and Chong also got from them.
2: Yeah. yeah. Did you ever see the Funnier Die video, Weird? Did you see the Weird Al?
4: Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. right. Yes. Yeah, Oswald played you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, I was flattered by that.
0: <laughs> um, well, was because uh, Frank Zappa, who you played a lot of his songs, but he was also just a serious musician putting out non-comedic yes, songs. Right. Um Did you come? Did you come into awareness of him through his funny songs, or were you already a fan of uh, his? Uh, you know, his normal stuff.
4: Well, I I was. I was told uh, that I ought to go see Frank Zappa at the Whiskey. That's the first time I saw him, wow. and uh, at that he was doing funny and serious stuff together, mixing them as he did on most of his albums. I still kind of think the funny music was something that he did to draw in an audience, really, uh, especially uh, young men. Uh, he, he realized that he might he realized that a lot of the music he wrote might be a hard sell as far as getting younger people who were not from the classical community to listen to it but if he wrote a song about yellow snow or a song about titties and beer uh, he realized that he could probably get a lot of uh, impressionable young men and (laughs) and young women too to come in and listen to his stuff and while they were waiting for don't eat the yellow snow they get exposed (laughs) to uh, a bunch of challenging yes (laughs) brilliant music and then you know if you listen to like the long version of don't Eat the Yellow Snow, that's no slouch either. There's yeah. a lot going on in that piece.
0: Yeah, and there was even, I think, on a, a Weird Al record, he did a, a I can't remember what at record uh, or what song oh, Genius,
4: was. In Genius France. In France.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And that was, like, very much a Which very, is
4: a song about Jerry Lewis, but the music is all uh, is all his subtle spoof of Zappa.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: That's great.
4: I was
1: wondering um, how you feel about the Marx Brothers and their place because they sort of, in, in my opinion, they brought a lot of, you know, comedy songs oh, yeah. into well, you know into movies when i
4: first that. started the show they, they were some of the first older stuff that i played i had an lp of groucho singing songs from his movies and hooray for captain spaulding from that album yeah uh, was very popular on my show and so that along with spike jones was kind of i think my audience's introduction to older stuff yeah uh, in the in the early days of the Dr. Demento show. And, of course, I still go back to that now and then.
2: Was, uh, do you know Harvey Sid Fisher? Oh, yes. Was back. he serious or was that not serious? Do you know Harvey Sid Fisher? Mm-mm. Harvey Sid Fisher sang a different song for every sign of the Zodiac. Right. And you're listening to it, you're going, this is either the least ironic thing I've ever heard or the most ironic thing I've ever heard. But each sign of the Zodiac has its own, and it's, kind of 70s-ish and you know it's like he'll, the song about Taurus is like bully bull bull I'm a bull bull like he sings the literal like what their attributes are and what the animal. like how what the- do I not know them? I don't know yeah. how you don't know is Harvey Sid Fisher is
1: that where your horoscope for the day the Weird Al song came from
2: I don't know maybe I'm uh-huh. sure well,
1: I'm sure Al was aware of
2: it I'm sure he must yeah. have been yeah Uh who else did you was there ever one that you were like man this is amazing and for whatever reason it just never caught on
4: Mm. No. Yeah, there there's some dance song. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. that that found that found an audience.
5: Oh, that's fantastic! It well, found no, no, about no. the audience it was
4: supposed
5: to have. <laughs> did you? What did you do with all those those forty fives? Did you sell them? I actually sold I, for the first one. Yeah, I actually sold. That's them fucking all. great. That's yeah. like we sold five hundred copies of that. Yeah. I mean, again, it was like what what the the good doctor was saying. It's like you you take two or three to different record stores and, you know, they're on consignment. And I, I have to say that the Dr. Domeno show was powerful enough that, like, look, every kid my age was obsessed with the Dr. Domeno show. And it certainly, you know, was a big deal for me, you know, as a sixth grader, as a seventh grader, because Everybody listened to the show, so I was able to sell enough of them that I saved up the money and was able to press another record, which didn 't sell at all
2: i 'm curious because now 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 that Matt Bennett has joined being the the youngest member on the Age totem pole. Uh, what are challenges for you now with music, and what do you what 's really easy about what you do and what 's really hard about what you 're doing now?
1: Um, I guess it 's a good question um, i don 't know it 's actually the position that i 'm in sort of makes it easy to do this. Um, I, I sort of write songs that are, you know, border on being—I f- I don't want to say they're straight-up comedy songs, but they are funny, um, or, or at least I, I, I like to say they're written with, you know, sort of cleverness in mind. Um, but I, I also uh, do a Nickelodeon show, so I sort of have this audience. This built-in audience, yeah. This yeah. audience that it's pretty appropriate for. Yeah. So it's sort of easy for me, but you know, there's—I, I see a lot of a lot more people sort of doing this, you know, with the internet and everything. I mean, there's. Um, there's Bo Burnham, of course. Sure. Yeah. Sort of, you know, and uh, and I don't know if you guys know George Watsky. I don't know George Watsky. Uh, he put up a video that got like th- millions upon millions of views, where it's just him rapping really fast, but really clever stuff yeah. as well. And there's that kid uh, Lukezky or Luke Sky. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, 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 yeah,
4: yeah. Very popular on my show. Really oh, yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, like great.
0: Really great stuff. Really good stuff. Yeah.
4: Does yeah. a, does a good live show too. Oh really? Yeah. He did yeah. the
2: um, he did the bringing Skeksis back song. Yeah.
0: Right? He, yeah. When he heard us talking about that bringing Skeksis back. Yeah. He
4: yeah. did the he
2: did the Skeksis oh. video.
4: Then um, another other branch of what i do there, there are a good many artists who do funny songs and serious songs and ones that are kind of a little of both uh, randy newman would be one sure yeah uh, christine lavin more recently i don't know oh, what, whatever happened with tom t-bone stankis who had probably
5: one of my favorite songs the existential blues the existential oh blues. that song
0: yeah. was one of my favorite mind
5: blower <laughs> it's so good and he did that live when you did your 10th anniversary show at Wolf and Miss Miller's Country Club in 81. Yes. He came out and did that live. And I remember that
4: blew my mind. And I just thought, this guy is a genius. He's still alive and well, doing doing fine. But he's morphed into being a children's entertainer. Oh, wow. A uh, hmm. part of he, he, he got religion and kind of decided maybe I shouldn't. The existential blues all my life, though huh. I think he'll still sing it when the audience is right. But he yeah. really, he's really a kids' entertainer. That's oh, what. He so does. no more
2: songs about poppies. <laughs> have you have you played any of Tom Wilson's stuff?
4: Oh yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, Tom Wilson's great. His homonym song, I, the homonym yeah, song yeah. is. My, do you, have you heard Tom mm-hmm. Wilson's yeah, homonym yeah. <laughs> song? Have you heard Tom Wilson's? No. To, uh, you, do you yourself a favor, one. Tom Wilson.
1: Is he? Who? He's Biff from. Yes, the, Biff, that's what yeah. I thought. Yes, yes, yes. But I heard that one song. He used to perform with a tuba. That, that's
0: an older yeah. song. He has a new song, and it's
2: oh, just all homonyms, and it's just yeah. it's really trippy. It's really good. awesome. Um, so drdemento.com, people can mm-hmm. go and subscribe, right. and they and they should. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug while you're here, or anything else uh, anything else you want to tell people before we release you?
4: Oh, there there is a uh, there's a graphic novel called Earthworld done by uh, Robert Balder mm-hmm. and uh, he is going to be doing an audio version of that, okay. I think with the uh, limited animation too, online okay. and uh, I've been uh, cast as Lord Stanley <laughs> in, in, in the audio version of Earthworld which yeah. uh, will start producing production soon
2: did, so you you actually so people do subscribe to your show. Is there a donations button too? Can people donate to the show to keep it going?
4: No, we just uh, do it by uh, it's it's two dollars per single show or fourteen ninety five for a subscription. Yeah, which means that you can also plunder our library of seven hundred plus older shows going all the way back to some of the first shows I did as Doctor Demento in nineteen seventy. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it really you're you know uh, I think you
2: were one of the forefathers of what we kind of think of as the modern podcast in the sense that you know you're a guy with a very specific field of knowledge and you love what you do and you expose people to this to this world and that's kind of yeah, the, that's, that's, the ultimate, I do. that's the ultimate philosophy of what of what we do here but i don't know if it ever would have occurred to me that radio or, or even podcasting would be a fun thing that i could actually do if it hadn't been for for you
4: well thanks You know, if if, uh, the radio show hadn't kind of fallen into my lap, uh, if I hadn't come along at just the moment when free-form radio was open to concepts like this, I probably would have been a professor somewhere. Oh, uh, Oh, really? a teacher of some kind. In Portland? Uh, Maybe in Portland. That's where I went to undergraduate school at Reed. Yeah. Yeah. My presence here is uh, I, I, uh, is due to UCLA. UCLA had a master's program in folk music studies for a few years in the 1960s. Folk music was my passion, especially blues in the 60s. And uh, so I came here, became uh, one of their first students, got a master's degree in folk music studies. Wow. To hang on wow. wow. Yes. Uh, but I wrote my thesis about the early days of rock and roll and the, the folk roots of rhythm and blues. Wow. So,
2: That's fantastic. Yes. You should put that so on your I, blog. Uh,
4: I was also a next door neighbor and um, really good friend for a while of John Fahey, who's now a, 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 he's, the late John Fahey has become more and more esteemed after his passing <laughs> as one of the pioneers of contemporary guitar.
2: Wow. Oh wow! So we were good friends. So it sounds like there's a house open next to you, So buddies, we should just yes. we should just buy it and move in next well, door.
4: Oh, well, that was in Venice back in the '60s.
2: Oh, okay, that was a long a time ago. a yes. little
1: cheaper back then.
4: <laughs> yeah, John uh, passed away in 2001, but uh, oh, wow. after a
1: colorful life, they've been releasing a lot of uh, a lot of his music now. Yes, They're doing a lot of boxes. Just
4: sessions. about everything that that he did is now available again.
2: If people want to submit songs to you, uh, what can they do?
4: Uh, Doctor Demento Yep. Uh, Dr. Demento at drdemento.com is my email address, D R D E M E N T O. Or you can do it the good old fashioned way with a CD, or even once in a while get a cassette, and we always accept vinyl. And that's P O Box 884, Culver City, California, 90232.
2: Now, uh, if there's any way, we usually sign off at the end of our shows to at Saint, telling people enjoy your burrito. Will you give us, would you mind giving us like a classic Dr. Demento send off like the end of the show and then just tell people to enjoy their burrito?
4: Don't forget to stay demented and enjoy your burrito.
2: Yeah! Sacramento, <laughs> thank you for letting us uh, nerd out on you for this for this hour. Uh, we well, thank
4: you, Chris. You know the word "nerd," which was invented, I think, when you were a very small tot, if not earlier. You have managed to co-op very nicely. Well, oh, thank you. <laughs> I think uh, I,
2: I believe the, the I believe the etymology of the word is uh, is Susian in nature. I think it, I think it actually goes back to uh, to an old Dr. Seuss uh, story. Okay. If I'm not If I'm not mistaken, I push up my imaginary glasses. Uh, at the moment Geek of course Is from the German word Geck Which were sideshow freaks Who would bite the heads off uh, Snakes and chickens And dork Is a well's penis <laughs> It's true It's true Yeah, There you go uh, and Matt Bennett, thank you for being our surprise guest. It's good to see you. What are you doing? What, what are you doing here? The, the show.
1: We got a show downstairs. Oh shit! What the fuck? Yeah, it's at eight. Oh, Wait. that's great. Thank you, Matt. Send me something. Absolutely.
2: Yes, I will yeah. absolutely do that. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, question. I'll, I'll connect yeah. to you guys and Dan Pasternak. Sweet. Thank you for being oh here. My God. Thank you. Thank
5: hey. you for letting me crash.
2: Of course, this buddy. Oh, we love thing. you, guy. You're I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get that welcome. song from you.
5: Let me scratch you behind the ear. Oh,
2: that feels good.
5: All right, good.
3: Dan, Dan, Dan Threw a can, can, can into a fan, fan, fan And he said, oh darn, darn, darn Mike, Mike, Mike couldn't ride a bike, bike, bike So we gave him a trike, trike, trike That we knew he'd like Kit, Kit, Kit Lost his mitt Mitt, mitt. He had a bit, bit, bit And he said, oh shoot, shoot, shoot Chuck, Chuck, Chuck was driving a truck When he hit a duck And he said, oh heck, oh heck, oh heck Joe, 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 don't you know, know, know That you shouldn't go, go Go to the Alamo Nell, Nell, Nell Stole a bell, bell, bell And you just can't tell If she goes to heaven Who knows? Rich, rich, rich Dug a ditch, ditch, ditch He threw a pitch, pitch, pitch You son of a gun Rick 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 learned a trick 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 He thought it was slick 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 But actually he's a pretty good magician Lou 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 went to the zoo 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 And he caught the flu 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 from a kangaroo Oh and by the way If any of you are offended by this song, well stick it up your Enjoy your burrito.
2: I have missed these Friday night dinners. welcome to Harvey Graf! At these family dinners... Delicious, everyone! ...dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life.
5: It's mom and dad being totally normal. Wow.
3: So, dinner next Friday, everyone?
2: What not miss for the world. What? Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream
3: free, only on Freebie.